Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 162. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, where we help women craft happy, healthy, and sustainable career paths. I'm fresh off the Bossed Up Bootcamp circuit, having just wrapped another fantastic bootcamp with my DC bosses who were so fabulous to hang with. We actually had women from all over the country this weekend join us in the birthplace of Bossed Up, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. And I always leave these weekends just feeling so inspired and so encouraged by our community of women who might not share the same vision for their careers and lives, right? We might have vastly different aspirations, but have such universal fears and such universal hopes. So it it was just so beautiful to see people from across industries, across age spectrum, all kinds of geographies represented, sharing their struggles to advocate for themselves at work or to be unabashed in pursuing their absolute dream for their careers and lives or struggling with things like money and negotiation and being unapologetic about pursuing financial freedom. And it's always so encouraging to see how women at Boston Bootcamp just bind together and support one another and, and leave standing a little taller, having a little more faith in their ability to push back on our unjust world and to be a, a shining example of an unapologetically ambitious woman who's going after what she wants. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. So shout out to all my bosses who joined me at bootcamp this weekend. If you haven't yet gotten your butt to bootcamp and you are considering a career change or looking to level up and work in life and want a whole sort of holistic approach to making it happen, there's really nothing out there like Bossed Up Bootcamp in terms of how intimate and involved and interactive the program is. And so I'm so excited to be headed to California for our final Bossed Up Bootcamp of the year in Los Angeles, November 16 and 17, the weekend before all the holiday rush starts with Thanksgiving and everything. Get one more thing in this year for you. Before we go home for the holidays, before we host people and slice the turkey or spend our days just being of service to others and, you know, giving back and doing all those wonderful, charitable, lovely hosting, being a good daughter, sister, whatever, mother roles that we play around the holidays. Do one more thing for you, for your future, for your career. And join me at Bossed Up Bootcamp with our team of excellent Bossed Up trainers who are going to tackle everything from clarifying your career vision to negotiation, to mindfulness and happiness, you name it we cover it. 
You get the idea. And if you can't make it this year, our first Basta Bootcamp of 2020 is officially on the books for another fantastic California city, one we haven't actually been to with bootcamp just yet, and that is San Francisco. So for all my Bay Area bosses, take note, we'll be in San Francisco the first weekend of February. So you can register now to join me in LA this year, this November, or San Francisco this February. And you can bet that before the year is out, we'll be announcing lots more Bossed Up Bootcamp weekends for the remainder of 2020. Hope to see you there. All right. Today's episode is such a good conversation. It is especially impactful for those of you who pride themselves on being creatives. I should say those of us, because I pride myself on being a creative and being a multi-passionate creative entrepreneur or just a creative content creator or writer, podcaster, art creator. You know, anyone who creates art knows how frankly, challenging, but also rewarding that kind of work can be. And today's career conundrum really tackles that spot on. But it also tackles the challenge that a lot of us creatives face, which is stagnation, creative stagnation. How do you overcome it in your career? What if you find a job you love? And even if you're not a creator, finding a job you love is fantastic, is a total first world problem, right? It's a good problem to have. But after you've been there for five years, 10 years, 20 years, is it a problem to not move up? I think we have this underlying assumption that we should always be moving up and always have bigger ambitions than where we're at. And is that necessarily true? Well, today's podcast topic is going to dive into those topics with a truly fantastic guest and a friend of the show, Meg Keen from A Practical Wedding. But first, let's listen to this week's career conundrum. Hi, Emily. My name is Alyssa, and I'm a longtime fan and avid listener of your podcast. Today, I'm calling because I'm a communications professional at a university in the Washington, D.C. area. I absolutely love my job and have been with the same unit for over five years now. One of my favorite things about my job is that I'm always learning and creating. Uh, I lead a team of just two, myself included. So I'm both the strategic thinker and the actual content creator for essentially any communications need that my department or unit has. The challenge I'm facing as I start to think about my next career steps is that I feel like any personal growth, both in terms of title and even salary, would require me to sacrifice the creation and hands-on parts of my job that I love most to take on a predominantly managerial role in which someone else is kind of doing the quote-unquote fun stuff. (laughs) How do I find ways to grow in my career in such a way that I can still be a creator and not just a manager of others who do the creating? Thanks so much. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership and for supporting this podcast. And of course, for your exceptional career conundrum. This is such a great question. And I struggle with it myself as someone who does not love management. (laughs) And frankly, I don't know many people who do love management. And yet I also know that management is so necessary for growth, for impact, for scaling, and for just reaching a broader audience with your creative work. So joining me today is someone who knows a lot about being a creative person and has shown the world what it looks like to amplify your impact through scaling up and through managing. So joining me here today to help break Taylor's question down is Meg Keen. Meg is the founder and editor-in-chief of A Practical Wedding, which started as a Blogspot account. Oh my God, Blogspot, what a throwback on her kitchen table and is now the largest independently held wedding publication in the world. 
Meg has published two creatively named books, A Practical Wedding and A Practical Wedding Planner, both top sellers on the wedding bookshelf. And I can attest to their excellence, having used them to plan my own wedding, thanks to the lovely gift from Meg. And that's actually how Meg and I met. So thank you for that, Meg. Her work's been referenced in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. She's shown up on sites like Jezebel, Refinery29, The Hairpin, and she's proud of her roots in California, in the Inland Empire, though she's also done her time in Brooklyn. Now Meg works and lives in East Oakland with her husband and her two awesome kids. Meg Keen, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us, first of all, a little bit about your creative career thus far and what experience you're sort of bringing to this conversation. So I um, run a website called A Practical Wedding. We're one of the top five publications, wedding publications in the English language. And I think pertinent to what we're going to talk about today, we're the largest independently held, which means that everybody who's as big or bigger than us has sold um, to a corporation and we have not, which means I run a team and I work for myself. There's nobody above me as a boss. Uh, and I have, unlike many people that work on the internet at this point, I've been doing this for a really long time. I call myself a grandmother of the internet. <laughs> I have run this website for 11 years. Awesome. And I've worked for myself for nine years now. And before that, because I am not so young and such a spring chicken that um, I was in college before that at all. Uh, before that, I worked at sort of a series of jobs that I frankly did not find super inspiring in various ways. My background is professional theater. So I worked in professional theater in administration. I also worked at an investment bank. So I have also navigated sort of the corporate side and, and working for other people, which spoiler, I didn't like very much. <laughs> yeah, you strike me as an entrepreneur through and through, which I love. And I'm, I'm intrigued by your story because so much of running an amazing blog and an amazing website like A Practical Wedding has to do with the creative components, right? Of writing, of content creation, of shooting. And I'm always stalking you on Instagram, watching your exciting things play out with like different dress photo shoots and fun creative components to your work. But at the end of the day, you're also a boss and being a leader, like Alyssa alludes to in her question, comes with a lot of management. So as a practical wedding has grown, how has your role shifted over the years? So it does come with a lot of management. And, you know, I always kind of joke that on Instagram, it's easy for my life to look glamorous. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to see all of the dress photo shoots and all of that. But the majority of the day, every day, I'm sitting at a desk and hammering away. I do a ton of management. I have a team of five, and that's a mix of full-time and half-time people. It's also a mix of local and remote people. So I manage a team of five people. I have a personality that any personality test I take, I come out with like one of the most rare personality types. Like it doesn't matter what the format is. They're always like, oh, this is the second rarest type. And that is, I think, because I my brain is sort of 50-50 split between being a creative and being a strategic problem solver. Yeah. So like part executive, part creator. Correct. Yep. And I am really unhappy if I'm doing 
just one of those jobs. I'm really very unhappy if I'm only doing creative, which seems like I wouldn't be, but I am. I'm perhaps even more unhappy if I'm only doing managerial stuff. Mm. I think that's a really crucial insight for our listeners too, is to recognize that the presupposition, right, underlying Alyssa's question to use a 50 point word there, but like the underlying assumption she's bringing to this is that she should move up, that she should advance her career. And I think really at the end of the day, it's about knowing yourself, knowing your personality type, knowing what's going to make you happy. And she sounds different from you, Meg, in that she says, I really love the creative work. I really love my job. And so as much as I am always encouraging women to go for it, to, you know, go for that promotion, go for that raise, we have to ask ourselves, what are we going for and why? And if it's just because some chick on a podcast is telling you you should, that's not a good enough reason, right? So I think under, underscoring your personality reflection there as part of your answer is just a really good reminder that your dream job description should be based on your personality to an extent. Right. It's important to balance an understanding of how you move up in a field and what you want in life and to figure out early on if those things are compatible. Did she say her age? Um, she did not. But I think she said she's been working for this customer, or this um, employer, a university for five years. Right. So my takeaway, which could be incorrect, is we're talking about probably late 20s, maybe maybe early 30s, but not, you know, not deep in your career. And I say that as somebody who changed careers at 30, 31, and I've been, I think I can say with great gratitude, like incredibly successful in my current career. And I think there's often this idea that you know, by the time you're 29, it's too late um, <laughs> right. and you're stuck. And you're living proof that that's not true. Right. And I also, sometimes people ask me like, oh, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with whatever? And the reality is like, my dream was to work in theater and I majored in experimental theater at NYU and I worked in theater for a while and I realized that, which, you know, it's not the case in this question, but for me, I realized it was like a hellscape and I needed to get out. Just for clarification's sake, why? Like what what about it? I mean, I saw I mean, first of all, and people are always sort of like oh, when I say this, but it's 100% true. I was not a good enough actress to make it, and that became very clear to me and very very quickly, which is great. Like I went to one of the top 3 schools for acting in the country, right? So, I was good enough to get in. Um, I was also you know, I went to school with Kristen Bell. Like I went to school with people that, you know, I went to school with Bryce Ellis Howard, who is the singular, like best actress that I have ever seen work in person. You know, so I went to school with big guns and I knew I wasn't as good as they were. Honestly, Meg, I find that so refreshing to hear. I mean, it's just like, yeah, I was able to, and I grew up, my dad really had this philosophy that he, that he drilled into us that you should always be 
a small fish in a big pond. Yes, yes. That being a big fish in a big pond gets you nowhere. Right. So did that. And that means you're always stretching yourself and it's it's usually very uncomfortable, right? But if I had been a big right. fish in a big pond, I would not have come to the conclusion that I wasn't good enough for this as quickly as I did. And I wouldn't have hmm. been able to move on, right? So not good right. enough, fine. And also not good enough also means like, which I think is pertinent here, wasn't going to be happy. So yeah. then I moved to theater administration and I really sort of saw behind the curtain. Like one of the last things I did um, in theater before I left was I helped produce, I was like the lead producer ultimately, just because my bosses weren't doing their jobs on this major gala that honored was honoring the one of the like biggest producers then and now I think on Broadway, who was one of the, the early producers of Rent. And now looking back, funnily enough, Lin-Manuel Miranda was like one, was our talent. Awesome. Wow. Everyone's like awesome. And like at the time, like, <laughs> like it wasn't that impressive. Do you know what I mean? Like he was right, talented, right. whatever. He was like Broadway talent. Producing that gala, I was like in those spaces and I was in, I sort of really saw behind the curtain and yeah. I was like, I have seen the top and it's not something that I want. Yes. Ooh, that's important. And that I think is really relevant to this question. And at the same time, I had one of my really close friends was in publishing and she was on the creative side of publishing Mm. and she was offered and she loved her job. She was an editor and she was offered a really huge promotion for as young as we were at the time where they were basically going to put her in a corner office like well before she was 30, Mm. but she was going to have to switch over to the business side and do contracts. And she was going to make a lot of money or a lot of money for publishing. And I remember at the time advising her to do it because she, again, like know yourself, she came from money, which I did not. Mm. And she knew that there was sort of like a standard of living that she needed to maintain to be happy. And in retrospect, I actually really sort of applaud her ability to know what was going to make her happy early. Cause I remember her being like, I just don't want to be broke and I yeah. don't want to be married and broke and it's going to make me unhappy. And that's not what I want for my life. And at the time I was like, I did not come from money at all. And I was kind of like, mm, you, you think you're fancy. <laughs> right. Right. But in retrospect, like still very good friends with her. She was a hundred percent right. And she made a bunch of decisions that led her to a place where she was going to be happy, which is like pretty key. Yeah. And I feel like we're not allowed to say that money makes us happy. And it's perfectly legit to say that. But I think there's healthy research that shows, and I, I don't come from money either. So I have struggled with this topic for a long time, but there is also a bunch of research that says up and to an extent that holds true. Right. I mean, my husband, uh, this really changed for me when I, when I got together with my husband, which I did really young, Uh, but my husband is from like a Jewish immigrant family. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, like, I have since converted, but he was like, you Protestants really have this, I mean, Christianity in general, I think Mm -hmm. have this like glorifying relationship with poverty. And he was like, that's not part of Judaism my ancestors did not come here. His grandparents. I mean, Mm. he was like, my grandparents did not come here from the old country to be broke. Right. We have been impoverished and persecuted and murdered forever. And we came here for something better. And I am here to get something better. Nice. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, I see that. (laughs) I never made the connection um, religiously, but I, I can totally see that as being true. That's interesting. And Judaism just doesn't have the like poverty, chastity. Right. 
humility is like, you know, we have many things that we value in Judaism, but we do not glorify poverty, which whatever is another question for another day. (laughs) If glorifying poverty is like the way to solve poverty. Right. So this friend did not take that job in the corner office. Interesting. I sometimes look back and wonder what would have happened if she did, because what happened is she ended up a few years later leaving publishing altogether. Hmm. And she's very happy. She changed careers. And again, a moral that you can like change. She changed careers around 30, Mm -hmm. but she looked ahead is what happened. She wanted to stay on the creative side and she looked ahead and she said, I see what editors make. And I have two books. Like I have an editor. I love my editor to death. She is in her you know, mid forties, late forties, she would be the first to tell you that she's living in like a rent controlled studio apartment and she can't ever leave it. Right. Right, right. So I think that we're not often told to do that reality check and to look ahead and be like, what will my career look like? And what will my life look like if funded by this career? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, but like it sounds like your friend pivoted into a creative career that also pays the bills. Super did not, but no, she did not. She is a speech and language language pathologist. She works. What? Yeah. She works with people like recovering from brain injuries. And oh my God. Amazing. Like, wow. Super rewarding. And you know, totally different career, totally different career. You know, there's this piece in the research that I always come back to when I think about this desire for progress and progression in our careers that I think underscores Alyssa's question, I think everybody innately wants a sense of forward momentum. Mm -hmm. There's this notion called the progress principle that holds all of us crave progress personally Mm -hmm. or professionally. And the, the mere sensation of progress is motivating inherently. But I wonder if she says she's so happy at her job, you know, what's she looking for? Because maybe she can just negotiate a raise without a promotion. Maybe it's just a keep me here money raise. Here's my real talk. And I think that yeah. there are sort of two things that she has to look at. One, if she's happy doing creative work and she knows she doesn't want to do managerial work, right? Like she needs to figure out if that's really true. Right. And if that is really true, then she needs to look at her career to trajectory, not even at the job that she's at, but at the field, in the field that she's in Mm. and say, if I stay doing purely creative, like get really real about it. What is your salary going to look like? Like, what is your position going to look like? And the thing that I would say is think about where you're going to be at 40 or 45. My joke is that by the time you hit 40, which I am about to do and a lot of, you know, my, I'm 39. Exciting. You end up taking like cool or cute off of any descriptor, right? Yeah. So you go from being like the kooky, cool cat lady to being a cat lady. You go from being like the cool, marginally employed guy to being the unemployed guy. <laughs> yeah. Like that is just like what happens. Cause you go from it being like this temporary kooky stage to it being your life. So yeah. pick something that you can live with. If you're happy being the cat lady, then Mm. go for it. But if it's not going to be fun for you once you're not like the kooky cool, Mm. and I use that because it's a silly example, right? Sure. Think about if you want to stay in like purely creative, what is your job title going to be when you're 45? What is your salary going to be when you're 45? What do you want your life to look like at 45? I had this realization also where I was like, I want to have 
hardwood floors, be able to like feed my kids organic food, have more than one kid and have them in childcare and live in like a major city because I'm a city person. And you've done that, Meg, right? I've done that, but I did the math at like 26, 27. And I said, that means I'm going to have to make $100,000 minimum. Right. And I can't do that in this career. So I need to get out and I need to find some somewhere where I can. Yeah. I am currently making more than I ever, ever, you know, again, not coming from money, but like I'm making more than I ever thought I could make. That is like, I have vastly exceeded that. So that's sort of my track one. And then my track two with her in terms of real talk, it is very, very hard to move up in any career if you don't want to do management. Right. right. Your best bet for like a mix of creative and managerial is likely working for yourself. And that's something, and in then you are talk. you're still talking about like, um, I'm able to manage making sure that I fit in creative because I make up my own rules. I was going to say, I feel like I've done the same thing. And I'd be curious to hear as you've grown this massive brand that is a practical wedding. How did you figure that out? Like, were there times when you over delegated creative stuff and then had to take some back? Yes. I mean, one, I don't think I do as much creative as people think that I do, which is sort of part of my like real talk, right? Yeah. I'm the face of the brand. There are frankly articles that go out under my name that are mostly researched by somebody else. Right. Right. And then I come in and do the final. Right. So like yep. even from, you know, an external perspective, it looks like I probably do more creative than I do. I roll up on shoots and I now have a trained staff, right? So I am the final art director on our shoots, but that often means that somebody else brings me a Pinterest board. I generally approve the concept. Do you know what I mean? There are times where I roll up on a shoot and I've done an hour of work before the shoot and then I'm on the shoot and then it's over. Everybody, people do everything else. Yeah. And what I was going to say is that there's beauty in that as well. And like, I guess Alyssa needs to do a gut check on how that sounds to her, but it sounds pretty damn great to me. The flip side is management, right? Like, I feel like we also need to talk about like what management means. Yeah, that's true. From my perspective, though, just to share another experience on this, because I'm halfway to being in business for 10 years, right? So Boss Up Mm -hmm. is like five years old, six years old now. And I have gone through many iterations already of having delegated too much creative work, Mm -hmm. taken a lot of it back. Mm -hmm. I still do a ton of original writing. Obviously, I'm doing this podcast and there's fun in that, but there's also a lot of fun in creative directing. Mm -hmm. And that's just a different kind of part of a different creative part of your brain where you're thinking strategy intersecting with creativity or strategy intersecting with, with management. And I find that to be surprisingly rewarding and challenging in, in new and di- different ways that might be, you know, stimulating, frankly, for Alyssa. Right. Because management takes time to figure out too, but there's a creative art to figuring that out. So I think part of it is like also breaking down what does management mean? And right. Because like, that's a pretty broad term. And like to think specifically about what that means, because there are, I really like creative direction where I have sort of over played my hand and then walked it back mm. is what I do not like and have learned is like, cause I've had teams of various sizes. I do not, the part I do not like is the part that's actually management. Right. And I think she's using management in a broad sense here. Yeah. I think she means a bunch of things, but the part where you're actually like managing people 
is the part where I do not find it emotionally rewarding. And I have had to figure out strategies for dealing with that. One, I've gotten better at it. And two, I manage less people. And three, I have someone who can help me manage. And I think four, I have learned how to hire what we call no drama Obamas, right? Like (laughs) I don't, deal with drama well. And there is often a lot of sort of drama in managing people, especially if you're like learning the ropes. Well, especially if you don't get to decide who to hire. Like if you're within some broader organization, oh my God. Yeah. That's and that part I don't like where you're like, I could be doing whatever work, whether it's creative or strategic. And instead I'm dealing with like some nonsense between yeah. coworkers, right? Like that or like, why are you not doing your work? Or yeah, right, like, true. I see that you are on Facebook. That's so fun, but not what you're paid to be here for, <laughs> right? Well, like yeah, all yeah, of yeah. that stuff, like that is the stuff that, and again, it's like trial and error, you know, like I also worry that, that she is, I mean, one, I'm like, if you know for sure on a gut level that X is the thing that makes you happy and Y doesn't, and you already know that, great. But also it's hard to know until you try. Yeah. There's a, so much more room for trial and error within our careers than I think we think, especially when we're early in our careers, right? You try stuff and then you're like, that did not work for me. Just to underscore that, like even internally in her current position, she could advocate for a special project that she manages that involve cross-departmental collaboration that involves managing other people as a way to try it on for size without betting the farm on it. There's definitely small bets that you can place on yourself to see through trial and error if it works for you or not. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, and also like you can get a promotion and like ask to be demoted. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or you can leave, but like you can get a promotion and then go to your boss and be like, I hate Mm. this and I'm not good at it. Right. And your boss will probably be like, girl, you're not good at it. (laughs) Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. I mean, it certainly depends on the boss, I would say, but being willing to take that risk and know that you can also find another creative job. Like if she's just looking for more money, which, you know, we, we're making assumptions here, but if that's the underlying concern from a creative standpoint, she could find a, a better paying creative job. And it's also like, are you working? Is it about more money or is it just about feeling like you're moving forward? Right. There are creative jobs where you're going to be stuck. I mean, that's the yeah. sort of realness of it is there are plenty of careers where if all you want to do is creative. Mm. You're, you're going to be stuck. Mm. And like, you have to figure out, is that true in your career? And if that's true, is that something you want? But then on the flip side, I have had people leave the team by burning themselves out. And part of the way that they burn themselves out is sort of a two part. And I think both apply here. One, just in general, and I I think you talk about this all the time, Mm -hmm. but like not advocating for yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You have to figure out what you want and what you need and then advocate for it because nobody's going to advocate for you. And then also figuring out like what you want and what you're needing, what you're good at and, and like pursuing those things because I've had people burn out because they're like, I really love the creative, but then the job they take on is not creative. But like, if that's the job, I, as a boss still need them to perform in that job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can't be like, well, 
it's fine because you really like creative. Right. Which right. is like, again, you can leave, you can, there's many things you can do. Well, one of the other options that I always like to throw out there is for people who are finding themselves stagnating or stuck to explore whether a personal project would fulfill them. If, if it's just a sensation of forward movement and progress, and let's say she's happily paid, happily clocking in and out, not overworked. Mm-hmm. If you want to feel a sensation of forward momentum in your life and career, this might be a great time to serve on a board, to get involved yeah. as a volunteer, to serve on a campaign. Lord knows we could use it right mm-hmm. now. You know what I mean? Like maybe there's an element in your personal life where you can also scratch that itch for a sensation of progress. There's so many different ways, but like you said, Meg, no one's going to advocate for yourself, but you. So you have to get ready to try some things on for size and get busy making it happen. And also that, I think that same advice applies to trying stuff, right? Like I'm currently on, because the world is a dark and terrible place. And I, this is obviously not something I would have picked, but I'm currently on our our synagogue security committee, Mm. which takes a fair amount of time, but it is exposing me to sort of a different kind of, in her case, it would be a little bit more management, right? But like, it's sort of a different kind of like, I'm on a committee engaging with the board, engaging with community members, whatever, which means I'm pushing my skills in in yes. ways that are outside of my comfort zone. And like, frankly, I'm not always nailing it. <laughs> right. Because it's so outside of my comfort zone. Like there's plenty of things that I yeah. feel like I could do better. And probably if I'm still doing this in a year, I will have learned a lot. But like, yes. I'm trying it out and it wasn't really an intentional thing, but like here I am and I'm trying it out and I'm, turns out I'm outside of my comfort zone and I'm building a new skill set. Right. And I may like it. I may not. Like, I don't know. Regardless, building a new skill set is never wasted time. I've got one more big question for you that boils down to the management concept. I think we've we've covered some of the ways in which we hate management, which I agree with mm-hmm. you on. And we've actually structured our lives to reduce the amount of management that we have to do. But I always struggle with impact and scale. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. As a creator, you can have the coolest one woman show on the planet, but how many people are going to see it if it's just the one woman show? Yep. By embracing a little bit of management, by letting go of 100% of creative control, you can dramatically expand your impact, expand your reach, expand your productivity or or just the time with which it takes you to create cool stuff. What is that cost benefit analysis been like for you and your business? And what's the what's the pro side? What's the sunny side of of actually managing a team? <laughs> it's interesting that you asked that because I actually feel like I'm at one of those junctures in my life right now that I probably don't have an answer for yet, but I can say sure. I'm grappling with it, right? Yeah. Is that I have again almost 40. It's like a moment where you're evaluating stuff. Sure. And I think that's just like everything I've heard is it's widely in one of those moments. I did this at 30 as well. And I have sort of been like, I don't want to, like my list of things I don't want to. I don't want to take venture capital money. I don't want to take right. investments. I don't want to manage more than X people, whatever. And that has sort of capped my level of growth. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, well, damn it. I really probably need to like think about pushing myself mm-hmm. because I have sort of reached the limit, I think, of the impact I can have and the scale that I can achieve with the sort of limits that I've put in place around myself. And mm. I just noticed that women do that much more than men do yeah. for a lot of like, we're 
trained and like the world isn't exactly like here, please take this venture capital money. Like there's a lot of <laughs> yes. structural reasons, but only 2% of women owned companies ever break the million dollars in revenue number, nonprofit in revenue, 2%. Wow. And I think these are a lot of the reasons why Yeah, we've sort of flirted with that revenue number, but we have certainly never exceeded it. And I don't think we can exceed it with the limitations that we have. So that sort of is like the, the question I'm dealing with. And then, mm. you know, I have in fact, obviously scaled up to the point that I'm at. And for all of those reasons, right? Like I didn't want it. And I would have been out of business a long time ago if I was like a one woman show because all of the mm -hmm. one, one woman show like bloggers, like in air quotes that we call bloggers are mm -hmm. gone. And I mm -hmm. was part of that wave and I'm still here. And that's because I figured out how to scale and I figured out how to do all sorts of things. But again, this comes back to the strategic part that makes me wake up in the morning that yeah. figuring out like, how do I allocate resources? How do I allocate time? How do I allocate my employees time? How do we put all these pieces together to build something cool? How do we build something new when we hit a mm. limit? Like how do we work around it? Like all of those things. And like, there are good days and bad days and there are good years and bad years, but like that is so compelling to me. And I just know that for me personally, I would feel really stuck if I was only producing creative content. Mm. And that's not true of everybody, but right. like there is a lot, like you said, there's a lot of creative work outside of what we think of as creative work. All of those strategic things that I do, if I was not a creative person, yeah. I would not do them well. Right, right, exactly. That's what I'm getting at is like a lot of management, like what you just described is creative. It requires stretching yourself well beyond the uh, existing perception of what you understand to be creative. And that's where I'm at. I mean, damn, we got to get a drink because I got to, we got to, <laughs> I got to, I got to compare some junctures with you right now because you're, you're giving me all the entrepreneur inspiration right now, but it is interesting to acknowledge like right brain, left brain, or whatever you want to call it, creative versus analytical and strategic to be a well-rounded professional, to be a master of your craft I think we have to push Alyssa to think beyond being being comfortable. Did she say she was a designer? She said she well, she's in marketing. We know that. So marketing design. So, okay. Our Peggy in Mad Men, right? I would also just urge her to look at like who are the people in her field that she admires because the yes. people that I know in marketing that are big names, which sadly... Many of them are male and I would not say super feminist. And I would say that that field needs more powerful feminist women because there's not a lot, but those men certainly did not achieve the fame and success that they achieved by not engaging in management, right? True. Like we say move with like the confidence of a mediocre white man, but like legit <laughs> white men are like, Guys, I was born for this. Like right, I have been right. at conferences with men who are like, I was born for this. And I'm like, you are 20, right? Like, <laughs> and you were like, oh, I can manage a team of 50 people. Like I'm here to tell you, you probably can't, right? Because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. But you're not letting it hold it back. Right. I love what Mindy Kaling has to say about this, which is to ask the question, why not me? 
You know, why shouldn't I be on that stage? Why shouldn't I be aspiring to what my idols can do? And then just allow that question to spark curiosity, Mm -hmm. to spark action. And my follow-up question would be, if not you, who? Because who's going to fill that space? If Mindy Mm -hmm. Kaling's not on that stage, like, I doubt it's going to be filled with another powerful woman of color. Right. So, like, if you are leaving that white space, who's going to enter it? Yeah. And is that person going to give more to the world than do you have to get where they're going to have like a more diverse perspective? Mm. Probably not. So like, think so about get it. Get in there. Yeah, yeah. So get in there. I love it. Well, Meg Keen, I am so grateful for your time, for your expertise, for your experience. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And our listeners, where can they continue to keep up with you and all the great things happening at a practical wedding? Oh, so creatively. I am at a practical wedding.com. I had a, I'm at a practical wedding on Instagram. Um, and if you want to follow me personally at Meg Keen, M-E-G-K-E-E-N-E on Instagram, and you can follow my fabulous gender non-conforming kids life and how I uh, juggle it all. And now it's time for today's boss move of the week. Today's boss move actually was submitted by our friend and listener, Kate, who's in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, which has been called, quote, the best place on Facebook by more than one person now. So if you haven't joined us there already, make sure you do so right now. There's a link in today's show notes where you can find us on Facebook. And it is a wonderful group of women, many of whom are loyal listeners to this podcast who continue to lift as they climb each and every day in there. So join us in there if you want to troubleshoot any career conundrums with a badass collective of women all across the globe who are there for the same reason. Anyway, Kate posted this boss move in the Courage community the other week and gave me permission to spotlight her here on the podcast. Here's what Kate wrote. Morning bosses, my boss moment of the week happened this morning. I was asked to co-plan an appreciation event. And instead of accepting it, I found a way to politely turn it down. I have a lot going on personally right now and feel it would be best to protect my time and energy and invest it in the positive steps I'm taking towards growth instead of taking on a project which will negatively impact me. It's a small step to some, but for me, this was huge and a total boss move. Hell yeah, Kate. Thank you so much for sharing this. You know, I think a lot of personal revolutions begin with small steps just like this one. So I'm so glad you wrote in with this because there's no such thing as a boss move that's too small to share. This is about boundaries and good grief. I am still working on setting and protecting my own boundaries. And I'm someone who speaks professionally on assertive communication and boundary setting. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to let someone down. It's hard to risk being seen as not a team player. It is hard to say no. So congratulations, Kate, for showing us how it's done showing us why you did it and making this strategic move. I think it's a total boss move, especially because there's research out there. I think the paper was actually called something about the Girl Scout effect or being a Girl Scout in the office, which no shade against the Girl Scouts. They're great. But there's this research out there. I think it came out of the NYU School of Business. I'll I'll look it up and drop a note in the show notes today that shows helping behaviors like helping serve on the party planning committee, for instance, or bringing in, you know, donuts for everyone at the office or helping a colleague finish their work. 
those behaviors don't earn women any brownie points at work because they're expected from us for, because of gender norms, right? Women are expected to be helpful and caring and kind. But when John or Joe or Mike or Pete from around, you know, around the corner in the office, when they chip in, when they exhibit these helping behaviors, they're lauded for it. And so I think it's a good point to frankly call this something that would have a negative impact on you because the time it takes to do this and the fact that it probably won't yield to any goodwill being thrown your way or any performance related benefits, I think that makes this a strategic call. I'm not saying we shouldn't be helpful. I'm just saying we should be strategic about when we have the capacity to be helpful. And when we don't, we should be unapologetic about setting and protecting those boundaries. So thank you, Kate, for showing us how it's done. What a wonderful boss move to share today. If you've got a boss move to share or a career conundrum you want me to break down on this very podcast next, call them in at the Bossed Up Hotline. We love featuring your voice whenever possible. And you can call and leave a voicemail at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. You can also email me in your voicemail or just record a voice memo and email that to me at info at bossedup.org. You can also share your boss move in the Courage community. Pretty much every Friday, I ask for your boss moves in a fierce Friday roundup post, except for the Fridays when I forget, which happens. But even if I forget, please feel free to start that thread in the Courage community without me and I'll gladly catch up with y'all. But it's a great place to be. So make sure you join us if you haven't already. For more information about today's episode and to find links to today's show notes, head to bossedup.org slash episode 162. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb.